0: I'm going to ask you to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 14. Uh, I was really hoping Mike was going to be better and be able to be here tonight. Um, given how much he loves Christmas is always asking for Christmas songs, I um, thought I'd title the message tonight, We Three Kings. So, um, partly in honor of Mike. So, you'll have to tell him when you, <laughs> you get home. But,. Um, we're going to look at First Kings, and we're going to look at some kings in the southern kingdom tonight, three different kings. And uh, before we go there, though, let's just go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help tonight. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness, and thank you for reminders through song of scriptural principles, uh, truth about who you are. Uh, We thank you, Father, that you are faithful. Even though mankind is sinful and growing worse, uh, we thank you that you are in control. You uh, limit mankind's sinfulness for your purposes and your timing, and you ultimately are going to bring an end to it. And we definitely look forward to that day. But until that time, Father, encourage us with your word and your faithfulness in spite of the sinfulness of mankind, and give us understanding, we pray, as we look at 1 Kings tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so it's been a a few weeks, I think, since we were in Kings, but uh, we're going to be in 1 Kings 14. We actually didn't finish the chapter uh, because we were talking about Jeroboam and his wickedness and that um, ended in verse 20, and so now we're going to focus in on the southern kings, these three kings of Judah that we see here um, mentioned in 1421 all the way down to 1524. Lord willing, we have a, a bit of ground to cover. But um, as, uh, before we read that, I just want to mention a couple things. We saw about Jeroboam that he's basically started his own religion. Right? He doesn't want people going back to the south so he's essentially started his own religion uh, to keep the northern people and he did this in spite of many warnings from god um, and signs and yet he did not repent he continued on in his wicked ways um, and ultimately the northern kingdom is going to spin out of control and eventually be taken over by the assyrian uh country of assyria in 722 bc but we see here the southern kingdom um, though they didn't pull out of the union so to speak they were the ones left behind and were therefore the legitimate kingdom we're going to find that judah is not much better off actually Um, so judah has a lot of problems and is heading towards destruction though that path of destruction is a little bit slower than it is for the northern kingdom. Um, But let's look at the first king. Our first king we're going to look at tonight is Rehoboam, who we've met before. But uh, we'll be revisiting uh, the summary of Rehoboam's rule in Judah. So let's go ahead and read 21 to 31 and uh, review uh, what it says there. It says, Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah... Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Nama the Ammonitess. Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy more than all that their fathers had done with the sins which they committed. For they also built for themselves high places and sacred pillars and asherim on every high hill and beneath every luxuriant tree. There were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations, which the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. Now it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and he took everything, even taking all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. So King Rehoboam made shields of bronze in their place and committed them to the care of the commanders of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. Then it happened as often as the king entered the house of the Lord that the guards would carry them and would bring them back into the guard's rooms. Now, the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? There was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And his mother's name was Nama the Ammonitess, and Abijam his son became king in his place. So we meet here Rehoboam, and we're going to see how Rehoboam's reign was not successful, it was uh, problematic. And uh, one of the reasons we see right from the beginning for that is found in verse 21. So let's break down verse 21 actually has a lot of substance to it um, as we look at the ungodly influence ultimately in Rehoboam's uh, rule. So let's see, first of all though, he was the legitimate ruler. He was the legitimate ruler. It says in in verse 21, he's the son of Solomon. So he is the next one to rule ultimately on the throne of David here, um, his grandfather. And he is the son of Solomon, which at least for most of Solomon's life, would have seemed to be a good influence. Someone who is wise, but uh, that certainly is not the emphasis of Rehoboam's reign, as we'll see. Um, We uh, also see that he was king over Judah. That's the legitimate right kingdom. He is the rightful heir to the right kingdom. He didn't steal the kingship. He didn't break away. This is the right kingdom. Kingdom, the legitimate ruler here. We also see his life stage. He's at a life stage which is a decent maturity for a person to take on that kind of responsibility. It tells us that he was 41 years old when he became king. Now there's something that we understand about the human experience that uh, we understand that teenagers are not equipped mentally, emotionally, spiritually to be that kind of ruler. Um, Even uh, older teens or young adults, it can be very difficult for someone to have a large uh, responsibility for leadership and rule. We understand that typically with age comes maturity and wisdom for people to take on those kind of responsibilities. So Rehoboam here is of a decent age, 41 years. And that's very similar I think to what Solomon was when he took over and David as well. So he's of a mature age. Plenty old enough to have learned some wisdom, though we know based on his interaction in chapter 12 that he didn't respond to that situation with wisdom. And notice the length of his reign here. Verse 21 says he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. Now, sometimes the length of the reign, the rule, may seem significant uh, on whether the king is good or bad. Sometimes the good kings get to reign a really long time, And the bad kings get to reign a really short time. But that's not always a telltale sign. Uh, Jeroboam, who certainly was unprecedented in his wickedness, reigned longer than Rehoboam did. So uh, Rehoboam actually dies before Jeroboam is done being king. Um, But it's 17 years. And we also see the location he ruled in Jerusalem. Now notice what it says about Jerusalem. This is significant, especially in light of what comes in the next verses. It says, He ruled in Jerusalem the city which the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put His name there. Now I believe that is a very, very purposeful emphasis by the writer here because of what it then says in verses 22 to 24, where there's an unprecedented idolatry that takes place. So he's pointing out how he's reigning in this city where God has put his name there, and yet they have unprecedented idolatry, sinfulness, uh, described there in verses 22 to 24. But we'll get there in just a minute. I want to draw your attention to this negative influence. Did you catch what it was? Verse 21. At the very end, and it says, And his mother's name was Nama the Ammonitess. Did you notice that that was mentioned in verse 31 as well? About Rehoboam? I think that's significant to indicate that she was an influential person in his life. And we know that uh, there are several ladies like this that are mentioned. In the mention of the kings, it, it, it will mention their mother's name, so that in some sense we have genealogy understanding, but I think also it's an indicator that they were an influential person in the kingdom. and We see um, later on how Athaliah was a uh, queen, and then the queen mother, and essentially then his grandmother takes over and is trying to wipe out all the, the males um, to take over. So. I believe it's significant that she's mentioned twice, indicating that she was an influential person in the life and reign of Rehoboam. And it says that she is an Ammonitis. Now, if you looked at Deuteronomy 23.3, do you know what it says there about the children of Ammon? It says they are never to enter the assembly of of the Lord, So we have in Deuteronomy 23.3 a stern warning against the Ammonites, anyone ever entering the assembly of the Lord. So that, that again just emphasizes the foolishness of Solomon in choosing a wife from those people that obviously would not bring up a child in the admonition of the Lord, right? So, we have an ungodly influence here with Rehoboam. We also have unprecedented idolatry, verses 22 to 24. We see an increase in sinfulness compared to the fathers. Look at verse 22. It says, Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy more than all that their fathers had done with the sins which they committed. So, interestingly, it's the whole nation that's indicted here. He's pointing out the whole nation of Judah is guilty of this, While there's obviously individual exceptions, the point is the characteristic of the whole nation is that they have abandoned the Lord in their sinfulness. They have done excessively more, it says, than their fathers. Um, But it's interesting. It's not just the king. Often it points out how the king led the people into rebellion. But here it points out it's the nation. It's not just King Rehoboam. In part, I think that's significant because it's foreshadowing what's coming for the whole southern kingdom. The problem of their sinfulness and the path of destruction they're on is ultimately going to live longer than Rehoboam and it's going to continue after him. And he is just the, the first king after Solomon where this is true and it's a pattern where it's going to continue. Now, if you were to look at 2 Chronicles 12.1, we see there that Rehoboam also chose to do evil. It's not just that he had a wild, rebellious nation that he couldn't control, but it tells us there that initially, when Rehoboam took over, he initially seemed to obey the things of the Lord and follow the law, but once he became strong, it says he abandoned the law. So, Rehoboam was clearly doing evil as well. But interestingly, there is this indictment on the whole nation of Judah, not just the king. And I think it's because it's foreshadowing the tragic end that's coming for the southern kingdom as well. So, in in other words, there's lots of bad reading ahead. So. Um, We we see this worse than previous, it's evil in God's sight and they provoked him. But we also notice they increased false worship. Look at verse 23, it says, For they also built for themselves high places and sacred pillars and ashram on every high hill and beneath every luxuriant tree. Again, emphasis on two opposites, the high hills and beneath the trees. The idea is it's pervasive, it's everywhere idolatry flourishes under the rule of Rehoboam. So we have great wickedness, increase in idolatry, increase in prostitution as well, we're told, perverted worship, uh, mixing immorality with worship. And notice verse 24, the second half, what it says there. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. So think about that. God removed the Canaanites because of their idolatry. And the children of Israel have gone on and imitated that same kind of uh, perverted, immoral worship that caused God to thrust those people out of the land. So what's the obvious implication that's coming for Judah? He is going to boot them out of the land as well because of these same sins. So we have unprecedented idolatry here under Rehoboam. We also have them under judgment. Notice uh, verses 25 to 28. It says, Now it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. So, uh, here the kingdom of Egypt, friendly during the initial stages of Solomon's rule, already now here only in the fifth reign of Rehoboam, comes up against Israel. And what do they do? Verse 26 They took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and he took everything, even taking all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. So, the king of Egypt comes up, takes away many treasures even the golden shields that Solomon had made. Now notice how they try to fix this. What do they do? Do they repent? Do they seek the Lord? Do they ask for his forgiveness and help in the situation? No. What do they do? They replace the gold shields because we've got to have pomp and circumstance, right? We've rejected the Lord and we've turned away from him and we're losing uh, his blessing. The glory's fading away. What do they do? They try to replace it. Verse 27 with bronze says, so King Rehoboam made shields of bronze in their place and committed them to the care of the commanders of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house, verse 28. Then it happened as the king entered the house of the Lord that the guards would carry them and would bring them back into the guards' room. It's kind of pathetic as you read this. It's like they've abandoned the Lord, they've done unprecedentedly evil compared to their forefathers, and they have all this treasure stolen, these golden shields, and then he will replace them with bronze and then continue to act like nothing's changed. They're missing the point, aren't they? The blessings of God are leaving them. They've abandoned the Lord, so he's bringing judgment on them, and they just try to go on as if nothing changed. Foolishness of mankind, isn't it? This is an initial judgment of the Lord on Judah, and again, if we were to look at Second Chronicles chapter twelve, why don't we just do that real quick? Second Chronicles chapter twelve, uh, we'll see how this these events are specifically stated to be judgments from God on Judah for their sins. Now, notice Second Chronicles twelve. It says in in verse 2, And it came about in King Rehoboam's fifth year, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, that Shishak, king of Egypt came up against Jerusalem. So there it is. They they disobeyed, therefore God brought them. Verse 5, Then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and the princes of Judah who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, You have forsaken me, so I have also forsaken you to Shishak. There it is. God's judging them because of their unfaithfulness they've abandoned him so he's bringing judgment and we have this symbolic representation of the glory departing the gold shields are gone they replace them with bronze and they continue to do this this formula of bringing them out and then putting them away the as if they're valuable <laughs> compared to what they had and as if nothing changed they failed to understand and they failed to repent we also see uh, Rehoboam's unwillingness ultimately to accept God's decision to split the kingdom um, because we saw this initially in chapter 12 and we, we see here at the end of chapter 14 how he continues to fight with Jeroboam and trying to take back the north. It says in verse 29 now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did and are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? There was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continuing. So we see here a conflict continually between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Uh, God had said he's giving the north to Jeroboam, and yet Rehoboam continues to have strife and conflict there. Perhaps, uh, undoubtedly, some of it was provoked by Jeroboam as well, in fairness. But um, we see the close of Rehoboam's life in verse 31. It says, And Rehoboam slept with his fathers, and he was, I'm slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David and his mother's name was Nama the Ammonitess, and Abijam his son became king in his place so that takes us then into king number two so king number two here is Abijam but if you read chronicles he's called Abijah so on your for the kids the worksheet the name of the king there is Abijah um which is what we find in Chronicles, but he is here called Abijam. Um, And he has an incredibly short reign. So let's look at verses 1 through 8, which talks about this king and how he also was a sinful king, an unrighteous king, and did not turn the people in the right direction. It says in verse 1, Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Makah, the daughter of Abishalom. He walked in all the sins of his father, which he had committed before him, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God like the, fa- the heart of his father David. But for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. There was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Now the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam and Abijam slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David and Asa his son became king in his place. All right so very quickly looking at Abijah very short life we notice the timing the timing of his rule it says in the 18th year of King Jeroboam uh, he became king over Judah and he reigned three years three years. Um, Now you might you might look at that and think he must have been unprecedentedly wicked right he was the worst king ever he only got three years three years well interestingly if you read chronicles there's this great battle that Abijah leads against Israel and Jeroboam and he rebukes Jeroboam exactly right in what he says he calls out Jeroboam for his false worship and making false gods, and leading people into sin, and he's saying, we're the real kingdom, and you're fighting against the Lord, and you need to stop this. And he's only got four or five hundred thousand soldiers versus Jeroboam's eight hundred thousand, and the Lord gives them a great victory, the southern kingdom against Jeroboam. In fact, it says there in Chronicles that Jeroboam never fully regained the strength he lost on that day after that battle with Abijah. So... You might think he was the worst ever, um, and in spite of that one battle, he isn't a great king. In fact, it does say he was a bad king, but he did have at least one moment that seemed pretty good. But the overall characteristic of his life is, is wickedness. Look at uh, verse 3. He followed in the tradition, if you will, of his father. It says in verse 3, He walked in all the sins of his father which he had committed before him, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God like the heart of his father David. Again, I wonder if it says it like this in part because there was that moment um, where he did a good thing and called the people to trust the Lord in that battle, but yet the characteristic of his life is what is being spoken to here, and it's evil. He did evil like his father Rehoboam. Now, you could look at this and say, "Well, why isn't God wiping them out already?" Right? We we saw in verses 22 to 24 how they are doing evil, just like the nations that God kicked out before them. Why does God continue to allow them to exist and do these things? Well, look at verses four and five. It tells us because of the Lord's covenant, essentially, to David. It says, but for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. Let's look at Second uh, Samuel. I know it's a familiar passage, but I think to see it again is good because this is what keeps getting referred to in these situations. Why does there continue to be a king in Judah that is a descendant of David? It's because of this covenant God has made with David. He says in Second uh, Samuel seven fifteen and 16 But my lovingkindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, when I, whom I removed from before you. He's talking to David here. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now we know the ultimate fulfillment of that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the descendant of David, is the fulfillment of that promise. But we see God continuing to preserve the, the kingdom of Judah ultimately for the, because of the covenant that God made. So it says for David's sake, but I think it's better for us to understand it meaning the covenant God made to David. So that for the sake of the covenant he made with David. Um, not because David was perfect. In fact, notice... Though it does say David is consistent here, in verse 5, it does point out David too was flawed. It says in verse 5, Because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. So David was consistent in following the Lord. He did have this incident that was a severe problem, and God dealt with him about that, but... We have Psalm 51 that shows David's repentance and genuineness and turning in response to God's confrontation through the prophet Nathan with what David had done. And David, unlike his descendants, most of his descendants, David did not go off in idolatry and worship foreign gods. He remained faithful to the Lord. So we see God therefore continues to preserve the seed of David, which ultimately was fulfilled in Christ. And we see here ongoing wars, 6 and 7. It tells us there was war. Now it's interesting, it's talking about Abijah, right? Or Abijah. It says there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Why is it talking about Rehoboam? I think the point is, when he was a young man, he wasn't king yet. He observed his father in constant warfare with Jeroboam, and he ends up doing the same thing. It tells us in verse uh, verse 7, that uh, there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam in his days too. And then we get to the, the end of Abijam's life here. It says he slept with his fathers. Pretty uneventful mention here. But the characteristic of his rule is that he was wicked. So we have two wicked kings here, two unrighteous kings... In each case, there's an occasional mention of something righteous or something that seems like obedience that they do. But yet here for our third and final king that we're going to look at today, we're going to see Asa is the exception. He is the good king. He is the positive exception to these three kings. He is the righteous king who actually does at the end of his life do a couple things that aren't right. But the characteristic of his life was that he was obedient. Now let's notice what Asa does in his life. Let's start in verses nine and ten. It says, "In Abijam, I'm sorry. So in the twentieth year of Jeroboam, the king of Israel, Asa began to reign as king of Judah. He reigned forty-one years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Maka, the daughter of Abishalom. Now, he takes over in the twentieth year of Jeroboam, and he reigned." Forty-one years, we're told. So here's an example where a good king has a long reign. So that's a, a good thing. And we're, we're given some data here that upon first read might sound pretty concerning about who his mother is, but we, we need to understand how the Scripture often uses the terms father and mother. Notice it speaks of David as the father of these kings, right? Have you noticed that? It says he didn't do right like his father, David. Well, David was actually the great-grandfather, right, at some point here. Uh, But yet it speaks of David as father. Well, I believe the same thing is being done here with the mother. This is actually the wife of Rehoboam, who's the mother to uh, the second king, Abijah, and is the grandmother to the third king, all right? So... She is the queen mother, if you will. She has an influential role in the kingdom. And I think in part because Abijah's reign was so short was why she continued to be in that role. Or we're not told perhaps something happened to Asa's mother when he was a child or in childbirth. We don't know. But this woman continued to have an influential role and she was a bad influence as we're going to see because Asa actually deals with her. Uh, So let's look at Asa's reform. So Asa is a good king here. Notice what it says about him in verses 11 to 15. But let's look at verse 11 first. It says, uh, the summary of his life and his rule here, it says, Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord, like David his father. What a refreshing break from all the horrible kings we've been reading about, right? Now, it's difficult as we look at some of this to think about what, what are some applications we might make? How does this apply to us? Well, I think we could take away a couple things, especially as we think about this positive break. Number one, mankind is wicked and because of our sinfulness, the tendency is to get worse and worse and worse, right? In spite of mankind's wickedness, what we see throughout all of this, we've already seen many times, we're gonna continue to see, is God himself does not change. He is faithful and good in spite of mankind's wickedness. And this is a wonderful reminder that God does bring exceptions. God does give grace and bring changes in rulers and leadership that is positive and accomplishes good things. Our tendency is to think that it's just all a huge downward spiral. And when we look at our own country, it's easy to make similar conclusions, right? Our country, especially back in the 60s and 70s, there were crucial leadership level decisions in our country that sent our country down a huge downward spiral, hasn't it? And if mankind is just allowed to continue to go the way that mankind goes, it's going to get worse and worse and worse and never get better. And that might be what happens, but there are times where God brings refreshing changes that are different and brings good things out, and sometimes even in ways we don't expect. So ultimately what we would be praying for in our country is not just that we get a good president, Ultimately, what we want to be praying for is spiritual revival, right? There's been times in our country where there's been spiritual revival. It's a little bit different when we look at the kings here, because in the kings, we have the union of church and state, if you will, right? It wasn't, I'm not calling the Old Testament people of God the church, you understand what I'm saying? But we have the marriage of spiritual uh, things and the state. There was no separation like we have in our day and age. Um, but we need to be praying for revival. We need to pray that God would bring refreshing change or bring people to repentance. He can and does and has done that. We should pray for that again. We should pray for our nation. We should pray for our leaders. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter two that we should pray for our leaders and all that are in authority. And why should we pray for them? Ultimately, the concern that Paul is getting at there is that the gospel would be preached without hindrance. So we should pray for that. And I know, uh, without being overly political, if you're anything like me, the response to the recent election in our country is though we look at the, the leadership change and there's a lot we don't like, there are some ways in which there's a more receptive response to the things of God than we've experienced in previous, the previous administration, right? Or the one that would have taken over. So, it's not revival. It's not the same thing that happened back then, but I think the principles we should be encouraged by are that God does make exceptions. He does bring change. He can change uh, rulers. And the Bible tells us the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. We should be praying for our rulers. We should be praying for spiritual change. And what a refreshing change this was, as we see in verse 11. He is a contrast to Rehoboam and Abijah, or Abijah. Uh, and he's compared to David. This is the first king that's compared positively to David. And there aren't going to be many others. But there will be a, a, some in Judah. But, notice what else he does. In verse 12, it says he put away... The male cult prostitutes from the land and removed all the idols which the fathers had made. So he gets rid of immorality and idolatry. It tells us as well, look at verse 13. This is fantastic. He also removed Makkah, his mother, or his grandmother, from being queen mother because she had made a horrid image as an Asherah. And Asa cut down her horrid image and he burned it at the Brook Kidron. Wonderful. He not only is doing what's right and removing immorality, he's even not afraid to deal with his own family who's creating false worship or promoting false worship. So he deals with uh, his grandmother and removes her from her position and cuts down this horrible image that he made and burns it. It's fantastic. But we do see there were limitations. Look at verse 14. It says, But the high places were not taken away. Okay, so we have a negative there. But, what's the summary of uh, God's assessment of, of his rule? Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord all his days. All his days. Now again, if you were to read Chronicles. There is actually a disturbing story at the end of the life of Asa that's mentioned there. Um, But again, I think it's similar to what we see with David, that his life is characteristically righteous, and he is a, a genuine follower of the Lord who is a sinner. And there's some sinful things he does at the end of his life. But he's a refreshing change that God brings here, in Israel Now, there's uh, also something else he does. Verse 15, it says that he dedicates treasures to the house of the Lord. It says he brought into the house of the Lord the dedicated things of his father and his own dedicated things, silver and gold and utensils. So, a refreshing change we have here with Asa. But, notice also his politics. And this one, maybe not as clear cut, but I think we can take away a couple things. So, let's look at uh, 16... Uh, down to uh, 22 here it says now there was war between Asa and Baasha king of Israel all their days now Baasha is the king who follows Jeroboam all right so he comes after Jeroboam um, because Asa ruled 41 years we're told and and Jeroboam only has a couple years left at the start of Asa's rule Verse 17, so Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going out or coming into Asa, king of Judah. So I don't have the map for you, but basically Ramah is on the south side of the northern kingdom. So it's a strategic location, and it's also along the road, as I understand, between the north and the south. So it's a strategic location to fortify, to prevent people from going to the south. Um... And so that's what he's building up here, we're told. And then uh, verse 18, it says, that Asa took all the silver and gold which were left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house and delivered them into the hand of his servants. And king Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tibramon, the son of Hezion, king of Aram, the Arameans, who lived in Damascus, saying... Let there be a treaty between you and me, as between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you a present of silver and gold. Go, break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa, and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, and conquered Ijon, Dan, Abel, Beth, Makah, and Chinneroth, besides all the land of Naphtali. When Baasha heard of it, he ceased fortifying Ramah and remained in Tirzah. When King Asa made a procl- or sorry, then King Asa made a proclamation to all Judah, none was exempt and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Baasha had built and King Asa built with them Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. Those were territories in the northern part of the southern kingdom that would be strategic defense locations against the north. So we have here what appears to be a crafty political move. So he has gotten the Arameans to attack the north, which then means they can't work on their building project in the southern part of the northern kingdom, so they have to go fight and defend themselves. And that allows Asa to move in, and essentially take away those building materials and reuse them for his own purposes. So from a political standpoint, it sounds... Savvy, right? And we might look at it and say, well, it worked. But does that mean it was the right thing to do? And this is a question of the, have you heard the term pragmatism? Pragmatism essentially is the end justifies the means, right? So if we get a good outcome, it must have been a good thing that we did. It doesn't exactly matter how we get there as long as we get a good outcome. Well, that's what I think we'd have to say about what happened here. So, a couple things to think about. Number one, what did he use to supply his agreement? The treasury of the temple. The things he had just dedicated to the Lord, he then reneges on that, if you will, and takes that back and uses it to bribe this guy, right? Right? In fact, there's, in Chronicles it also tells us that there was another battle where Asa called on the name of the Lord and the Lord delivered them. And in Chronicles it tells us that Asa did not call on God in this case. So his failure to call upon the Lord and basically trusting in the treasures and trusting in the Aramean king instead of God is clearly not good. We also see that he's urging the king of Aram to break a treaty he already has, right? We've seen in the scriptures, even when the children of Israel make a bad covenant, like happened with the Gibeonites, they were supposed to wipe out the Gibeonites and they didn't realize they were close. So they were tricked and they made a treaty with them that they wouldn't kill them. And then they find out they're close and yet they had to honor the treaty. So him urging for the king of Aram to break the treaty would also not seem to be good. So, I think this was not a good thing. It was politically slick, you might say, and it worked for his purposes, but he did not trust the Lord, and and that was obviously a bad thing. Notice how it ends for Asa, verses 23 and 24 tells us now the rest of all the acts of Asa and all his might and all that he did and the cities which he built are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah but in the time of his old age he was diseased in his feet and Asa slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father and Jehoshaphat his son reigned in his place so we have here a king though he does have flaws the overarching characteristic that God labels his life with is that he was good and that he followed the Lord. And I think what we're to take away from this as we look at these three kings is the kingdom of Judah is headed for destruction. They're on a slower path because God is preserving seed for David. He's preserving a ruler for David, and the covenant he's made with David, and David's consistency in seeking the Lord. Yet, they are headed on a path of destruction. However, there will be seasons of positive kings doing positive things, and uh, that uh, that is a blessing and a wonderful thing that God does because he is gracious. So I think it shows us a couple things about God that we can take away and apply to our own situation. Number one, in spite of all the wickedness of mankind, what do we repeatedly come away with? God is faithful. God is good. Mankind is sinful and it's getting worse, but God is faithful. We rejoice in that. Number two, we also see God in his sovereignty limits the sinfulness of mankind. He doesn't allow it to deteriorate too fast and become complete and utter chaos, which it would if he didn't restrain it. But there are also seasons of God's grace and God's mercy where he gives good things to uh, his people and he allows them to have rulers that are better than others. And I think we take away... uh, those things about God and praise Him for His faithfulness. We praise Him for His faithfulness. We thank Him for His restraining of evil. And we pray, we should be praying for that, if He would continue to restrain evil. And we should also pray that He would give us seasons of blessing. He'd give us rulers who will promote uh, freedom and the ability to share the gospel and allow us to continue to worship as we are and to spread the gospel. So we know ultimately the world is going to wax worse and worse. But we should pray about these things that ultimately God will give us the opportunity to share the gospel and that he'll be gracious in giving us rulers that will allow us to do that and promote good. And he'll restrain the evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We sometimes find it discouraging to read about these things uh, because it shows us plainly that mankind is sinful and headed for destruction. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the work that you do in our own lives individually to deter us from evil, to protect us. But we thank you as, as well in how you restrain evil, even in our nation and around the world. And Father, we pray that there would be revival in our country. We pray that there'd be revival around the world. We pray that the gospel would continue to go around the world, and You continue to give us opportunities in this country to send people around the world to share the gospel. Help us as well to be thankful for Your faithfulness and reminded of it, and that we would strive to be faithful like You are, to be wholly dedicated to You. That. When our time is up, Father, help us to be able to have said about us that we wholly followed you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.